If you'll find your place in your Bible at the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're new to the faith or a young believer and you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, that's okay. Don't be embarrassed by that. We all had to learn. If you can find the book of Psalms almost in the middle of your Bible, and then if you can go forward two books, Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is tucked in there between uh, Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And it's 12 chapters long, and over the coming weeks, I'm going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes with you. Every time that I'm preaching on Sunday morning, we're going to be coming back to the book of Ecclesiastes, even when it's a holiday weekend, when we might have another kind of a message on a holiday weekend. We're going to be coming back, even during those weekends, back to uh, this study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of those books that a lot of people don't like to read. Some of you, when you're reading through your Bible over the course of a year, you come to the book of Ecclesiastes and you skip it. And you skip it because it seems to have a negative tone to it. It seems to be pessimistic when you're reading through this book, and that bothers a lot of people. Ray Stedman, who is an author, a pastor, written a number of books, called Ecclesiastes the mystery book of the Old Testament, the mystery book of the Old Testament. Derek Kidner, who is a scholar, he's written a number of uh, books on the Old Testament, specifically here on the book of Ecclesiastes, says that the Old Testament has lots of different kinds of literature. It has poetry and law, storytelling, psalmody, vision, I would say prophecy, narrative, historical narrative. But he says, no book in this whole great volume speaks in quite this tone of voice. And if you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that the tone of voice in this book is unique to a lot of the other books of the Old Testament, and for that matter, uh, to the New Testament. But what you need to understand is that this book of Ecclesiastes counters many of the things that we're feeling and dealing with in this world today. It counters things like atheism and hedonism and humanism and materialism and existentialism and a number of other of these isms are countered in this very book, the book of Ecclesiastes the book of Ecclesiastes helps us to avoid having an overly simplistic view of the world. A lot of people have a very simplistic view, but the book of Ecclesiastes has a realism about it. He's telling you the, the, real asset, the, the reality of the things that are in the world around us. It's reminding us that we can't hold things of this world too tightly. And it helps us to understand what what I've titled this series of messages. It helps us to understand the good life and the pursuit of the good life. I think everybody in this room wants to live the good life, right? I mean, there'd be something wrong with you if you didn't want to live the good life. But a lot of times we go about living the good life in the wrong way. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells us how to live the good life, and he wants us to enjoy the life that he's given to us. As a matter of fact, you will hear the author of this book say on several occasions, I want you to live life and enjoy it. 
But he's also going to tell you how to have that good life and how to enjoy the life in a way that you will appreciate and that you will understand when you stand before God one day in eternity. I mean, this book is realistic about life's struggles, about life's fears, about the troubles that we have to deal with in this life. And it answers questions that are still being asked to this very day, like what is the meaning of life? Do you know what is the real meaning of life? It answers questions like, why am I so unhappy when I'm searching so hard to find happiness? The author of this book is going to answer that question. Or questions like, is life really worth living? Over the course of the pandemic, the number of suicides demonstrated that there were a lot of people who just couldn't find a reason for living. They couldn't figure out if life was worth living or not. Or that age-old question, does life really have a purpose? Those questions and many more questions that are like those questions are answered in the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what's interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes. Though it may be negative at times and it may seem pessimistic at times, this book was actually written for young people. So let me qualify young people. (laughs) We're not just talking about teenagers or college-age students or young adults. We're talking about people that are 30 and 40 and 50, people who are still in the prime of life when they still have, God willing, lots of life yet to be able to live. They still have the opportunity to pursue lots of things in the course of living out their lives. This book is written to those who are young. So you might be a teenager here today, or you might be in your 50s or even more, but this book speaks directly to you. Look back, if you will, at the last chapter next to the last chapter, chapter 11 of the book of Ecclesiastes, and notice verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9. The writer says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And you get down to verse 10, and at the end of verse 10, he says, For childhood and youth are vanity, childhood and youth. And then you open chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. And so this book, while it may seem pessimistic and it may seem negative, what I want you to understand is that it's actually written to young people. It's written to young people who have life to live. And and this is the idea of what's going on. The author of the book is telling you, I've been there and I've done that and I've got the T-shirt to prove it. Now pull up a chair and listen to me. I want to tell you some things because I want you to enjoy the good life, but you should avoid the pitfalls where I have already been. And that's what he's saying. Young people, this is for you, but you're going to have to be willing to listen to somebody older than you are who's been there and done that and has got the T-shirt and knows what he's talking about. We live in a generation, I don't suppose any generation is different, but we live in a generation that's stubborn, that's stiff-necked, that's rebellious in heart, 
that says, I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to go through the hardships and the hard knocks of life. I'm not going to listen to anybody else. I want the good life, but I'll find it for myself. I don't need you to tell me anything. And the author of this book says, you need to stop and listen to me for a little while because I've been down that path, and I can tell you, it doesn't lead you to the good life. It, it leads you to a painful life, and you need to stop and listen to me. I can help you find the good life you long for, but you've got to be willing to listen. And there's a lot of young people, there's a lot of young adults, there's a lot of adults in the middle years of their lives that won't listen to anybody else other than themselves. It doesn't matter how wise they may be. I have discovered after 45 years of ministry that when people come to speak to me and talk to me that a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times they simply want me to confirm what, they've, what they already believe. Just tell me what I want to hear. Just confirm that I'm right in what I'm thinking. They don't really come asking for the wisdom of the years and the knowledge of the Scripture to be able to apply it to their lives. They just want some affirmation of what they've already decided to do. And that's the opposite of what this book is about. This book is about writing to people who have lots of life yet to live and invest so that they can find what the writer of Ecclesiastes will define as the good life where you can enjoy your life and do it in a way that honors God in the process but if you won't listen to me and you won't pay any attention to somebody who's already been down the wrong path, then you'll have to go down that wrong path and find out. But in the process, you will miss the good life or you will shorten the length of days that you have to enjoy the good life because you weren't willing to listen to anybody else other than your own voice or the voices of your friends who all agreed with you and said the same thing that you say. So it's written for the purpose of helping us find the good life by telling us, don't do this, don't do that. And that comes across as negative. Sometimes that comes across as pessimistic because it sometimes contradicts what we already are doing or what we think we want to do rather than what we need to do if we're going to experience the good life. Now, it's interesting that if you're going to read this book, you have to have the interpretive key. As a matter of fact, if you had the interpretive key, you could read this book and you could understand it and you would appreciate the negativity and the pessimism that's in the book. The, the look at life from the perspective it sees life. And do you know what that interpretive key is? It's found in the opening verses of chapter 1. Follow along with me. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Israel, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's his thesis. Wouldn't you love to have a thesis statement that says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity? Oh, yeah, this is going to be exciting, Pastor. I can see that now. Yeah. If you're not willing to listen to wisdom, if you're not listening, willing to listen to somebody who's been down the path and you don't have to go down that same dumb path and find that it's a dead-end road, if you're willing to listen to somebody who's been there and done that, he can help you to avoid going down the wrong paths and you can be wise. By the way, this is wisdom literature 
It's in the wisdom portion of your Bible. It's, it's imparting to you something that you need to know that you do not know. It's wisdom that God wants to give to you. But the interpretive key comes in verse 3. What profit has a man for all his labor? You felt like that before, haven't you? In which he toils, and here's the interpretive key, under the sun. Under the sun. Here's something that I would encourage you to do over the course of the study of this book with me. Take your Bible and find, every time you find the word vain or vanity, circle it, highlight it, underline it. And every time you find the phrase under the sun, under the sun, you will find the word vain or vanity 38 times, and you will find the phrase under the sun 29 times. As a matter of fact, if you could see my Bible, which I know you can't, I've been through and marked every time you find the word vain or vanity, and every time you find the phrase under the sun, and my Bible looks scarred. It looks like it has wounds on every single page. But if you don't understand what he means by under the sun, then you don't understand the negativity and the pessimism of the book. And you don't understand why at the end of the book he says, look, gather up here with me, all you young people, gather up here and listen to me. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. Please don't make these same mistakes. Please. Don't go down this same path. It doesn't lead to the good life. If you want the good life, and I want you, he says it over and over, to enjoy the life you've been given. If you want the good life, listen to me. Listen to me. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn. Don't be rebellious at heart. Don't be the one who has to learn in the school of hard knocks. Listen to me. And that interpretive key opens up the entire book. You say, what does he mean when he says under the sun? Well, it means on this earth. The phrase literally means on this earth or on this physical world in contrast. Hear the words? In contrast to the spiritual world. Again, Derek Kidner says, Solomon's Solomon's viewpoint includes exclusively the world we can observe and that our observation point is at ground level. In other words, the writer of this book is saying to us, all I can see is what I can see and all I can know is what I can know. And what I see and what I know, it ain't pretty. It doesn't fulfill. It doesn't bring happiness. But by the time he gets to the end of the book, he says, let me tell you something. I can show you the way to happiness, and I can show you the way to fulfillment, and I can show you the way to the, to, to the, uh, to the good life. If you'll only listen to me, if you'll only pay attention to me, I can help you. But you've got to understand that much of this book is him telling you what life is like under the sun. It's a horizontal perspective on life. It's a, it's a humanistic perspective on life. I remember when I was in Bible college, which has been a long time ago, we had to write papers on humanism. I thought, man, how silly is this? Humanism, nobody believes in humanism. 
Those papers are in my files. Do you realize we are as humanistic a society as we have ever been? By humanism, I mean that man is at the center. It's all about who we are. And what we have, most, for the most part, is a naturalistic point of view. What we can get the best scholars who have the most knowledge and who know the most number of things, get them all together and collectively combine all of their information. And that's all we know. The only thing we can see is what's under the sun. We can know something about the past unless they remove all the monuments from the past. We can know something about the past. We can know things about the present. We might even be like a meteorologist. We might be able to predict a little bit about some of the future. But the reality is we don't know much beyond that because all we can see under the sun is what we can see, and all we can know under the sun is what we know. And so he goes through here living out life, giving you his experiences one after another of looking at life from a naturalistic point of view, a humanistic point of view, saying, I'm just living for me, and I'm living according to what I can see. It's very much the existentialism of the day. You know, where life doesn't really have any meaning and you're not really sure what its meaning is. And nevertheless, you're responsible for making the right choices. We just hope you make the right choices because if you don't make the right choices, you won't even get to any of these places that really don't have any meaning anyway. <laughs> Solomon says, there's, or excuse me, the writer of this book says, there's a whole lot more to life than just living by what you can see. There's a God's eye view to life. Not just a man-centered view to life. Now, who is this author who writes these words and says, I want you to draw near to me, and I want you to listen to me. Young people, listen to me. I've got some insight and some understanding and some wisdom. You think you're smart. You think you know it all. You think you've got the world by the tail. But let me tell you, I've been down this path, and I can give you some inside information, and I can keep you from having to go through that pothole of life if you'll only listen. You don't have to bend up the rims of your, your life's car. If you'll just listen to me, I can keep you out of the pit. Who is this one who was living his life according to an under-the-sun view where he's just seeing what he can see and understanding what he can understand, where, he, where, where he's just uh, very humanistic in his approach to life. Who is this one? Well, in verse 1, he says, the words of the preacher. The Hebrew word for preacher is koheleth. This word preacher is used seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes. A koheleth, a preacher, is somebody who has the authority to gather people together for the purpose of imparting some kind of information that they need to hear. And so it's an assembly with, with somebody who's called that assembly together to say something that needs to be heard. So, so we have here an elderly man, a man who's in the twilight years of his life, 
who's calling the young people to himself and saying, I've been there and I've done that and I've tried this path and that path. You know, life is like a maze and I already know the pathway through the maze because I met a lot of the dead ends along the way. If you'll just listen to me, I've got some information. And he gathers a group together out of Israel and says, come listen to me. Come pay attention to me. I want to teach you something. He's the preacher. That's not enough to identify who this is. He says he's the son of David. That doesn't help us a whole lot either, does it? We know that David had at least 20 sons. We know of one daughter. He had at least 20 sons. One of those sons died just after birth, not long after birth, after the sin with Bathsheba. But David had as many as 20 sons So that doesn't really fully qualify. It's somebody who has the authority to gather people together and teach them in an authoritative way. He's somebody who is the son of David, but then he says he's the king of Jerusalem or king in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, in verse 12, you'll notice he says, I, the preacher, there it is, Koheleth, was king over Israel or king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, now, Now we're getting clarity, aren't we? Now we're getting clarity. It's not just the preacher, somebody qualified to gather people together, not just one of the many sons of David. This is a particular son. And the only son of David that was king in Jerusalem was the man Solomon, right? Turn turn back to the last chapter of the book for a moment. Chapter 12, verse 9. Let's just clarify this. Verse 9, and moreover, because the preacher, Koheleth, was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Uh Uh-oh, there's another qualifier. Who is it that we know wrote proverbs? 3,000 of the 3,000 proverbs. Who was that man? It was Solomon. So who is it that is summoning the young people to himself at the end of his life, in the twilight years of his life, to say, look, I've tried all of these other pathways. I went through the maze. That's a dead end. No, no, that's a dead end. No, that's a dead end. No, no, that's a dead end too. Listen to me. Here's the way through this maze that takes you to the other side, that brings you to the good life where you can really enjoy the life that God's given to you. Listen to me. I mean, I'm the son of David, the favored king of Israel, the king by whom all other kings were measured. I'm right now king in Jerusalem, and I've written all of these proverbs. You mean to tell me that Solomon wrote this pessimistic, negative book? King Solomon? That can't be, Pastor. That just can't be because you got to understand, don't you remember, Preacher Shirley, you know your Bible well enough to know that God gave to Solomon an unusual wisdom that excelled everybody of his day. Surely a man given that kind of wisdom wouldn't have made such mistakes in the course of his life. (laughs) That's sort of like saying... 
Surely the people that come to church every Sunday and hear me preach and our other pastors on the staff hear us preach the word of the living God and show you what the scripture says to do, surely you're doing those things, right? You can be the wisest fool that ever lived. And Solomon is the man who writes the book that says, I've been there and done that. I've got the T-shirt to prove it. And if you'll only pull up your chair and listen to me, young people, stop being stubborn, stop being, uh, stop being a stiff neck, stop being rebellious of heart, listen to what I have to say. I, I'm going to teach you some things about life. Now, you can go do life the way you want to do life. You can, you can bang your head against the wall if that's what you choose to do. But I can lead you to the good life if you'll only Listen to me. I want you to go with me back for a few moments to 1 Kings chapter 2. I want to take you quickly and briefly through the life of Solomon. As you know, David was the, the king to, to whom or uh, was the king that was uh, the penultimate king Every king after him was compared to him. When Solomon came to power, his father had died. You notice in chapter 2, verse 10, so David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Let me give you an insight into Solomon's kingdom. David had done all the fighting. David had done all the warring. David had done all the defeating. For the most part, King Solomon is going to rule over a 40-year period of time that's going to be a time of relative peace, that means that most of the money that they have isn't going to have to be spent on wartime efforts. Most of the money they have is going to be able to be spent in Jerusalem and specifically on the building of the temple. Turn over, if you will, to chapter 3. I want to simply mark this in your mind. Verse 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with the Pharaoh with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, my. Oh, my. You say, well, he's 20. At this point in his life, he's 20, 21, 22 years of age. He's very young. He's, he's given this responsibility, this task of ruling over this great people, the people of Israel. And he's very young, and okay, you know, he made a dumb mistake. This is not something that he should have done. He entered into a treaty with the king of Egypt, and as a part of the agreement, he gets a woman from Egypt to become his wife. Do you know what God said about these kinds of things? God had already told them, you don't intermarry with the pagans around you. Because if you do, the end result is they will take your heart and turn it away from the Lord. But he's a young man. We often look at young people and we say, you know, ah, they messed up. You know, they, they, they made a mistake. Maybe the next time they'll do better. 
Maybe the next time they'll make the right choice. Maybe the next time they'll remember what happened the last time and they won't do it again. That's why they're married three and four and five and six and seven times. Maybe they won't do it again. Well, just keep that mental note. He married the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But you'll notice in verse 3, same chapter, chapter, two, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, and Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statues. Did Solomon love God? Yes, he did. He made a mistake, but he loved God. He was walking in the statues of his father, except, will you circle that word? We should seek to eliminate every exception possible from our lives. Right? He loved the Lord walking in the statue of his father David, except, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Oh, no, not, not only has he, not only has he married a, a daughter of the king of Egypt, it says, yes, he loves God. Yes, he loves God. But here he is offering sacrifices at the pagan places of sacrifice. Come on, Solomon. Okay, 21, 22, 23, 24. You know, we'll give you these mistakes. Okay, we, we got it. You, you, you got to understand. You got to learn from your mistakes. Right? Anybody with me? Well... Solomon knew this task was way over his head. Verse 4, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was, great, there was a great high place. Mm. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon. Okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to help. I'm gonna come help this young man. I'm going to come help him. At Gideon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of, your, of, of my father, David, but I am a little child. I'm so young. Okay, you shouldn't have married the daughter of the king of Egypt, and yeah, you shouldn't be going to those pagan high places and offering sacrifices, but you're young. God says, Look, what can I do for you, Solomon? How can I help you? In your heart of hearts, I know you love me. How can I help you? Verse 8, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? And what does he ask for? He asks for wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions. Wisdom is the ability to make good choices. As you'll see in a few moments, wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective. When you can see life from God's perspective, you can walk through the maze without coming to so many dead ends because you see where they lead. And God says, what would you like me to give to you, Solomon? I know you're young. This is an awesome task that's been placed on you. 
you know, you, you love me and I don't want you to leave your love for me. So, so what can I do for you? And he didn't ask for money and he didn't ask for power and he didn't ask for prominence. He asked for what every one of us should ask for. He asked God for wisdom and God says, I'm going to give it to you. As a matter of fact, God gave him more wisdom than anybody of the day to make good choices and, and good decisions. Look over, if you will, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29. Chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart. That means a, a breadth of understanding that was like the sand of the seashore. It's limitless. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. You notice down in verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. I mean, here is a man early in his life who's been endowed with this incredible insight to life this incredible wisdom to govern the people, this incredible wisdom to make good choices in his life. Solomon will launch from here. By the way, his wisdom is immediately challenged. It's immediately challenged, and he demonstrates the wisdom that God has given to him. But then he launches into this project this project that was long, something that his dad wanted to accomplish, King David wanted to accomplish, and that was the building of the temple. And God says, you can't build it. You're a man of war. I won't let you build it. But David did what? David gathered the materials, many of them, maybe most of them, the materials for the building, and he left the building of the temple to his son Solomon. And Solomon begins a seven-year process, a seven-year process of building the temple. And if you'll turn over to chapter 8. The temple has been completed. It's time for the dedication of this temple. And Solomon, this man who's been endued with the wisdom of God to be able to govern these people, to have insight into life like no one else of that day had insight into life. Notice in the prayer, he prays at the dedication, verse 57 of 1 Kings chapter 8. He prays, and what an incredible prayer. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers, may he not leave us nor forsake us, that, we may, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which, which he commanded our father. Do you get it? Seven years later, he's been given this wisdom. Seven years later, the temple's built. And he's praying, oh God, help us to keep walking in your ways. He's got some flaws, as all of us do. He's got some flaws. There's some areas of his life that aren't where they need to be. But here he is. God gave him wisdom. He gets the temple built. But somewhere along the way, Solomon began to drift. If you don't know this, the song of Solomon was written when Solomon was a very young man. There's a great story about who the Shulamite women potentially could be for whom he wrote that incredible poem. In those early, up to maybe the middle years of his life, when he's building the temple and he's building the palace, 
He's exuding this wisdom that God has given to him. Yes, he's still married to that Egyptian woman. And yes, he's still going sometimes to these pagan shrines where he's offering these sacrifices. He shouldn't do that. But he has deep down within himself a love for God. But as time continued to pass, notice 1 Kings chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, the Sidonians, and Hittites. All of that in violation as with the daughter of the king of Egypt. All of it in violation of Deuteronomy 17, 17. But he loved all of these women from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts. Oh, listen to me, young people that aren't married, singles that aren't married. Don't marry because you think you just got to get married. Your time is running out. Because if you marry the wrong people, they'll turn your heart away from the Lord. He marries these women. They turn his heart away from the Lord after their gods Solomon clung, hear the words? He clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. I'm surprised they just didn't bury him under all the dirty clothes that had to be taken care of. <laughs> they turned away his heart. Verse 4, for it was so when Solomon was old. When Solomon was old. When did Solomon write Ecclesiastes? When he was old. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. And Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord. Look at verse 9. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice, once to tell him, I'll give you wisdom because you've asked for wisdom, another time to reaffirm the promises. You walk according to what I tell you. I will bless you. I will bless you. But if you don't walk according to what I tell you, you will experience the curses Solomon paid no attention. He kept right on marrying these women. I guess so. A thousand wives and concubines? I mean, can you imagine building enough rooms for that many people to live in the palace? And what's interesting when you get to verse 14 of chapter 11, for the first time, God starts sending the judgment. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hadad, the Edomite. Now, here's the picture I want you to get. I'm going to finish up here. Almost finish up here. Very early in his life, 
God says, I want to give you wisdom. I want you to make good choices and right choices. And God gave him that wisdom. But little by little, he began marrying these women. They kept turning his heart away from the one true God. They kept moving his heart further from God until Solomon began to live his life, not on the plane of a relationship with God and a fellowship with God and a communion with God where he had a God's eye view on life itself. He began living his life according to what he could see and what he could understand. You do understand that all of these other gods, all of these false gods, they're false gods. They're rocks. They're pieces of wood. They have no life in them. If they're going to save anything you have to save them you got to put them in your pocket if they're in danger and carry them off they can't give you any other perspective they have no perspective they're not even alive and he began living his life according to what he could see what was right in front of him and what he could understand and what he could know and you know where it led him it led him right where I have watched Again and again and again, people go to a dead end. Solomon says, come sit at my feet. Come listen to me. I'm an old man. But I can tell you the way I live my life under the sun, you know, just doing what pleased me, what made me happy, what made me feel good. Yeah, you know, a thousand women in the household. What made me feel good? What made me feel powerful? Just doing and living for me, the hedonism and the, and the humanism and, and all of these other isms, just living according to the world is what I can see. Led him to a place of absolute misery. And he came and he said, sit down and listen to me. You don't have to go down that path. If you'll only pay attention to what I'm telling you, there's another way to live that leads you to the good life where you can enjoy your life and your life takes on meaning and purpose and significance and where when you get to the end of your life, you're not embarrassed at the way you've lived your life. Come sit at my feet. I've been there. I've done it. It doesn't work. Pay attention to me take you to one more place and I finish. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Why do I want to live a life with an above the earth perspective rather than an under the sun perspective? An above the sun perspective rather than an under the sun perspective perspective. Because when you live your life only by the humanistic perspective that's around you, by the way, you won't get that anywhere else but in God's Word and in God's church. You won't get that in the secular education system. As a matter of fact, you'll get the opposite of that in the secular education system. The only place you get that is out of this book and out of Bible preaching churches like this. You get that above the sun perspective. In Psalm 73, Asaph is going to describe what it's like when you see the wicked prospering and all you have is an under the sun perspective. 
Notice verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever felt like that? I'm working as hard as I can go just to be able to take care of and make ends meet. And those people over there are living in the most profligate way of life. And they have everything they want. Asaph knows exactly what you feel like. Verse 4, for there are no pains. That is, no pain in their death, in their strength is firm. That's a begrudging assertion that these people are healthy and they're, they're filled with wealth and, and life just turning up roses everywhere for them. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. We've been watching it, violence in the streets of America. Pride, this is the month of pride, serves as their necklace. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. They curse God. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. That means they say anything they want and they get away with it and they excuse it. Well, that's just my personality. I can say what I want to say. Nasif says, I don't understand it. These people just keep getting by with it. Where is God? Verse 10, therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. That's an interesting phrase. I don't have time to go through. And they say, how does God know? I mean, how does, they're tempting God. Eh, God doesn't know what I'm doing. He's not omniscient. And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, there are, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. You hear what he says? I mean, they're living in an easy chair. Life is turning up wonderful for them. And here I am. I cleansed my heart in vain. I washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He said, this doesn't seem right. Please listen to me. It may seem like the world can live any way they want and get by with it. But that's an under-the-sun perspective. Verse 15, if I, have said, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue. In other words, if I'd have been saying the things they said, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Young people, if I stand before you, young couples, young adults... 30s, 40s, and 50-year-olds, if the preacher stands before you and tells you what you want to hear rather than the truth of the Word of God, he's lying to you. I would have been untrue to the generation of your children when I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me. 
when all I could see was an under-the-sun perspective, and I saw the prosperity and the ease with which the wicked were living their lives and marching through the streets and behaving in ways that no one should even ever have to think of behaving, when I see it and they're getting away with it, it was just too hard because he was only seeing the under-the-sun perspective. You may think at this moment you're getting by with your sin. You're not going to get by with your sin. Verse 17, until suddenly his perspective changes. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Suddenly, his perspective is not an under-the-sun perspective. It's an above-the-sun. It's no longer horizontal only in nature. It's now vertical in nature. He's now seeing life not just from the way man can see it, but he's seeing it from the way that God sees it. And he says, wow, I've been envious of all these people doing all these things and getting away with all these things, but now I understand that their end is not good. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors and a dream when, as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I mean, living your life according to an understanding. The sun perspective alone is foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It's like living like an animal lives. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Do you see the difference between and under the sun perspective and above the sun perspective? Do you see it? Solomon says, come sit down with me. I'm an old man. And I know a lot of people don't like to listen to old men. They think we don't know anything. They don't think we have anything that we have to offer them. Just come sit down with me, Solomon says. I've got something I want to tell you. I want to tell you what it's like living under the sun, and then I'm going to tell you how to have the good life so that you don't get to the end of your life and regret the days that you've lived or regret the days that you missed that you could have lived the good life, but you wouldn't pay any attention, and you chose to do it your way, and you just wanted to live by what you could see and what you could know. You didn't want any other perspective that came from God. Don't make that mistake. What does James chapter 1 verse 5 say? If any of you lack, what's the word? Wisdom. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is seeing life from God's point of view. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. And then he says, he, he doesn't slap your hands. and no, you can't have any more. Nope, nope, that's all you get. You've had too many cookies, 
too many cookies of wisdom. He doesn't slap your hand. He says, I want to pour it out to you. I want to give it to you because I want you to find the good life, the kind of life when it ends, you're pleased when you see me and not ashamed.